2: Welcome to Ask the
1: Lawyer with me, Mike
2: Connors. This show is usually in two parts. The first part of the show, we're talking about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Today, we're not going to be talking about estate planning and elder law. We're going to be talking about history and one of the most tragic and heroic figures in U.S. history, Audie Murphy. And we have Professor David Smith, who's going to be talking about Audie Murphy And his life, both during his service time and after. And we're going to play a couple of clips from Audie Murphy's autobiographical movie, To Hell and Back. Sometimes you you appreciate just what kind of man he is by those clips. And of course, I know at the time he didn't want to play himself in the film. But then somebody came up to him and said, "Who else can play you except you?" So if you've never seen To Hell and Back, you should see it. I really don't like World War II movies that much, but. This has the ring of truth to it because, number one, it's about Audie Murphy and it stars himself. Now, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you know, again, we're not going to be taking any questions over this weekend, but you can give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We do not charge for the first consultation. The first consultation is free. Anything we're talking about as far as estate planning or elder law. Again, a lot of times, one of the main questions we go, how do I deal with my house? How do I get my house tax-free to my kids? I don't want them to have to pay taxes, and none of us wants to pay taxes. And believe me, one of I do not want your children to pay taxes. So, so come in. We'll come up with a plan to get your house to your kids, avoiding going through court, saving that house from nursing home bills. And as far as elder law is concerned, we'll, we'll get it out tax-free to your kids, avoiding probate. So now we're going to be talking to David A. Smith. The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. In between, we're going to be playing a couple of clips of Audie Murphy from his autobiographical movie, To Hell and Back. And again, if you haven't seen that film, I strongly recommend you do so. At the end of the clips, we're also going to be playing a reminder for the Memorial Day weekend parade in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. It's the 150th anniversary of the Memorial Day parade in Brooklyn. It's the oldest Memorial Day parade in in the country. And it started here after the Civil War. Originally, it was called Decoration Day and it was started after the Civil War to honor the fallen dead from the Civil War. Eventually, it became to honor all the fallen heroes in American history. Remember, this is you know not just the first weekend of the summer, and a lot of people take Memorial Day as just being the first weekend of the summer. It's a little bit deeper than that. It's a day to mark and remember the fallen dead who gave their lives in service in the United States military to help make us all free. So again, first we're going to start with The Price of Valor, David A. Smith, The Life of Audie Murphy. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Brooklyn Memorial Day Parade. And if you want any questions about estate planning or elder law, you can always give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Again, we have offices in Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, and Manhattan. So give us a call. We'll talk it over and go from there. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike.
2: Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. There's a book out, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II, and really one of the great personalities of the 20th Century. And the book is by Professor David Smith of Baylor. How are you doing today, sir?
3: Great. How are you doing?
2: Pretty good. I'm glad you wrote the book because I think Audie Murphy has kind of been forgotten now as we're getting into the 21st century.
3: I think you're right. I think he was forgotten by the time he died, and I think it's just a a struggle to keep somebody as important as he is in our consciousness.
2: Audie Murphy, World War II hero. Where was he from?
3: He was from North Texas. He grew up in a little rural area where cotton farming was the, the, the only occupation. His parents were tenant farmers. And uh, it was at the end of the 20s, early 1930s, and his, he came from unimaginably poor, poor background. He never knew a day of security in his life.
2: Okay, so he's a, he has a tough life growing up in Texas. World War II breaks out. What happens?
3: World War II comes along, and Pearl Harbor's attacked in December 1941, and he wants to enlist, but he's too young, and he's undersized. And, and he, he, he finally lies about his age and, and joins the infantry in the, in the, in the summer of, uh, of 42. But he wanted he – wanted, he was swept up in the general patriotism that happened after Pearl Harbor. But he wanted another life. He wanted to do something other than farm. And right now at this point, he didn't know what he was going to do. He was a fifth-grade dropout, and he didn't have much of a future at all. Was he an intelligent
2: boy he
3: was not he was not book smart but he was he was bright he was clever he was perceptive he was emotionally intelligent but uh i I would i would call him a sharp kid yeah
2: he eventually gets assigned to the third infantry division by the way when i was in the service i was serving in Würzburg, germany and they had the audie murphy platoon which was guys from texas but uh
3: right yeah
2: yeah So he's with the Third Infantry Division, and they're going through some heavy combat during World War II in Europe.
3: Oh goodness, yeah, they they saw more combat than any other division. I mean, they were in it from almost from the beginning all the way through to the end.
2: So when did Audie Murphy join the division?
3: Let's see. He he was he was deployed overseas in January of '42, and he went to North Africa. By the time he got processed into North Africa, most of the fighting there was over, and he was assigned to the Third. Infantry division. So the first time he saw fighting was in the invasion of Sicily in the summer of forty-three.
2: And then he obviously fought in Sicily and then through the Italian campaign.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he 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 came across the beach on D-Day in Sicily. He fought his way up to Palermo and then all the way across to Messina. He saw some pretty tough fighting, and then he took part in the invasion of Italy proper. Then he fights his way all the way up to Rome. He was involved in the Anzio operation. And uh, after the fall of Rome, he's part of the troops that will be pulled out of Italy and sent to the south of France for the invasion of the south of France.
2: When does his legend start to become reality?
3: Uh, well, that's a good question. I know that by the time he left Italy, which was summer of forty four. His name was pretty well known throughout his division. I mean, the guys in his division in his unit knew him well. One of them said, "When we knew Audie Murphy was in the front lines, the guys in the rear area could go to sleep. It's not really until the winter of forty four forty five that he and his Medal of honor win in uh, january forty five that's when the public starts picking up on him. And sort of then catching up with this this record of heroism and bravery that he's put together.
2: Now, can you describe for the audience the incident that led to his medal of honor? Oh gosh,
3: it, 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 I can describe it, but it sounds like I'm making it up. Uh, he, he's part of a he's part of a, a company that's moving southward out of some trees toward a little German village across a snowy field, and he's got two light tanks with him moving up to provide cover. And then from out of the village comes an entire company of German soldiers with tanks as their backup. And the tanks take out Audie's tanks. Audie is a forward observer calling back artillery positioning to the rear. And his men have to start falling back, and the Germans are proceeding across the field in his direction. And finally, he sends all of his men to the rear— And he's falling back with the phone in his hand, and he sees a burning tank. Actually, it's called a tank destroyer, but it's basically just a light tank. He sees a burning one of those, one of his that has been knocked out. He climbs up on it and mans the 50 caliber gun that's mounted at the top, and he starts shooting that 50 caliber at the approaching Germans. And he stands there on that burning tank and holds off this entire company until they break off their attack. That's how you win a Medal of Honor.
2: That scene was depicted in his autobiographical film, To Hell and Back.
3: How accurate, right,
2: yeah. how accurate do you think the depiction was?
3: Oh, it's okay. I mean, it's not bad. I mean, it was filmed during the wrong time of year, so it doesn't, it doesn't have the, the environment. They filmed that in Washington State in the summer, and it didn't look anything like France in the winter. Um, and the the snow wasn't there, but generally speaking, they did a pretty good job. I've watched that scene umpteen times and they do a pretty good job of it. And they, they, they don't over dramatize it really from, from uh, his account of it and from the accounts of people who saw it happen.
2: The war is over. He's a national hero at this point. He's on the cover of what is it? Life magazine.
3: Life magazine in 45. Yep. What happens to him then? Well, I mean, he comes home, and he comes home to this hero's welcome. And before he's even home, the Texas legislature had passed, you know, resolutions honoring him as a native son. And he comes home, and he's just dropped right into this swirling mass of publicity and adulation. And uh, he's—he's he's, people ask him to give speeches, and their are Audie Murphy Day, you know, in every little town of north northeast Texas. And one afternoon, he's at his sister's house, and a telegram arrives from Jimmy Cagney in Hollywood. Cagney had seen Audie's picture on the cover of Life magazine, thought he was a good-looking kid and had some promise, and wanted him to come out to Hollywood and check it out, and Cagney wanted to see if he could become an actor. And that that transforms his life right there.
2: He just didn't become an actor, so Cagney did what for him?
3: Well, Cagney— you know, met him at the airport, put him up in his house for a while, paid for him to have acting lessons, and they never took and and Cagney said the kid just can't act. He looks great and he's a nice kid but he just can't act. And he finally cuts Audie Murphy loose after you know and he was under contract at the Cagney company. And he cuts him loose after about a year. And Audie just sort of, you know, exists in Hollywood. i mean he's famous people know him they know he's out there working on a movie career and it's it's really not until john houston makes the red badge of courage in 1951 that his career really starts to take some traction
2: we need to take a short break but if you can hang on with us i have children how can i protect them if something happens will my to
4: assets them? be lost if i go into
3: a nursing home we have property how it affect the ones still here who will help us take care of grandma
1: Seven one eight two three eight six five hundred. That's seven one eight two three eight six five hundred. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at six.
5: If you're a homeowner age sixty two or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government insured reverse mortgage may be the answer, or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call 888-943-2646.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
6: Sir, Private Murphy reports the company commander has ordered.
4: Lieutenant Harris, third platoon leader. Murphy, we've been looking over your file. Spent the first week of basic training in the hospital. Reaction from inoculations. Yes, sir, I, I never had any shots before spent most of the trip over in sick bay yes sir i
6: well, i never been on the ocean before and, well
4: there uh, were a lot of other guys in there with me requested transfer to paratroops denied due physical deficiencies It was a mistake assigning you to a rifle company, and I'm going to see to it that you're reassigned. But, sir, I ask for a combat outfit. I don't want anything else. Well, except for the jumps, duty with us is just as rugged as a paratrooper's. The captain's just trying to do you a favor, Murphy. I know that, sir. I
6: don't want any favors, and I don't want to be transferred.
4: i believe in giving a man a chance especially if he wants one as badly as you do that's all
2: welcome back to connor's corner we're talking to professor david smith from baylor talking about his book the price of valor the life of audie murphy so we're talking about audie murphy gets cut by jimmy cagney but then he gets a break in a film by john houston the red badge of courage
3: Mm Mm-hmm. yeah and and john houston was one of the few directors who really believed he saw something special in Audie Murphy. He knew it would be hard to get it out of him. He knew he would have to, have to almost baby him in a way. But Houston had a faith in Audie that few other directors had. And it paid off well because Audie Murphy's performance in Red Badge of Courage was good. The movie got cut up by the studio into a, just a, just a shameful mess. But Audie's performance in it was the best of his career up until that point.
2: That movie still, it brings him national prominence as a movie actor.
3: It does, yeah. It's it's interesting, you know, the gossip columnists in Hollywood were just abuzz with this idea that a Medal of Honor winner, a real soldier, would be playing a soldier in this American classic like Red Badge of Courage. And the studio was skeptical, but but uh, Houston stuck with it, and, and Houston... Won the won the right to have Audie in the movie.
2: Now you would think, right now, Audie Murphy—he's a national hero, he's a movie star. You think he's got a pretty easy life that he's just relaxing in his own mind and enjoying it.
3: Right, you
2: would think that, wouldn't you? But what was happening?
3: He's got what we call PTSD. I mean, he's got—he's got it bad. And I mean, you, you think back on his life, and you know, his his father runs off, his mother dies. Then he joins the army and then he's he's under unimaginable stresses of combat almost nonstop from forty three into forty five. And as soon as he's coming back, before he was on the cover of life, before Cagney called, before Audie Murphy days all over Texas, he was he was unable to sleep. When he did finally fall asleep he'd have terrible nightmares. And, and the war the war wouldn't let him go. I mean, he was severely traumatized. I mean, he killed, I think he was credited with 250 official kills, and he's not even 20. And and that, that tears him up. Now, is he married at this time? He gets married in, let me think about that a second. He gets married in 1950 to a, an, an aspiring actress named Wanda Hendricks, whom he saw on the cover of a magazine. And he just was smitten with her. And they got married after a short courtship that was followed by the cameras. He was in Life magazine again, you know, posing home life scenes and stuff. And, and it turns out they were totally incompatible. She wanted to be a movie star. She was, she was there in Hollywood to play that game. And, and he couldn't take it. He hated movie stars. He hated the business. He thought it was a bunch of phonies. And their, their marriage fell apart pretty quick. They were divorced in about a year. And then, then he came across. He met a stewardess, a Braniff stewardess, if you remember Braniff Airlines.
2: Yes. Uh,
3: from Texas, named Pamela Archer, and they got married, and and that they were married for the rest of his life, for you know some happy, some sad, but they were married for the rest of his life.
2: Do they have any children? Uh,
3: they had two. They had two sons. They were both born in the nineteen fifties, and. Uh, their their sons are still alive, as far as I can tell. Pamela died not too long ago, actually, but their sons are still alive. They avoid the press quite a bit. They don't they don't uh, associate with their history.
2: All right. So again, Audie Murphy, national hero. We can't even imagine today what it must have been like to be a hero of his stature right after World War II.
3: It it was a different culture then, you know, and and Audie Murphy is one of these few characters. Who represents the pinnacle of of military achievement and bravery and valor, you know that sort of thing, and, and and how we revere that, and then right after that he becomes a movie star and he becomes a Hollywood heartthrob. At one point, in the 1950s, he's receiving fan mail of the sort, uh, you know, of the you know, by the bag, like Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson would be receiving. He got more. Fan mail than any actor in Universal International's studios for a while, and and it just the, those two those two roles in American culture right hero and celebrity are are incompatible they're very different they draw from different emotions and different virtues and and the and the tension between them just made him miserable.
2: Now some of the audience may not know, but then he started drifting. Most of his films were westerns. Right.
3: Uh, yeah, he made a whole lot of westerns.
2: And they were successful at the time.
3: Yeah, I mean, he was a B-movie actor. We don't have too many B-movies anymore. I think that's the problem. All our movies are sought, you know, they make movies to be blockbusters now. And Audie Murphy would make a movie in, you know, in a couple of months. And it would be released, and it would be a big, it would be popular, and then it would disappear. And by that time, he would have another one in the can. You know, he made 48 movies over his career. And some of them were what we would call high-dollar, high-budget things, you know, high-profile movies, but most of them were the B movies, and he did a workable job in them, and uh, he was a bankable bankable movie star.
2: I think occasionally when he did get a good director like John Huston again in The Unforgiven, I think when you oh, see gosh. him – with Burt Lancaster and Lillian Gish yeah. and and all the great actors in that film, he holds his own. If not, dominates the screen. I think in some of those.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Unfor- the Unforgiven is his best work, and it, you, you get the sense that when he doesn't have to carry a movie, when the camera's not on him all the time, when the attention's not on him, he can he can really he can really flourish. Uh, I don't know if he's a good actor or not. But you put him with the right director, you get him in the right role, he can, he can do well. He does a great job in that movie.
2: And I think also whenever he's paired with Dan Duryea, it seems to bring out the best of both of them.
3: I agree, yeah. He did a movie with him uh, called Night Passage, and Dan was the villain. And they, they had some great scenes together. And in Night Passage, uh, Audie's co-star was Jimmy Stewart, of course. And and Jimmy Stewart was the headliner, so Audie didn't have to be. Audie doesn't appear until thirty minutes into the movie there, and he does a great job.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, he's an interesting actor. Again, sometimes he doesn't look that good in some of the films, especially when it's not a western. At The same time, he does carry a western fairly well. And he he, I, when you're you're saying it right, when when he's got Burt Lancaster or Jimmy Stewart, he seems to be able to carry this supporting actor role.
3: Mm-hmm. I would like. I wish that. He could have existed in a studio system that would have let him flourish like that, because I think he would have had a better career, and I think it would have lasted longer. I think he would have made a transition into the 1960s a little bit better than having to be sort of a, a, a gun-swinging, heroic, happy-ending Western star.
2: Then, you know, you get into the 60s, and his career seems to disappear a little bit.
3: Yeah, I, you know, I blame the, the shift in the culture for that. I blame the shift in Hollywood's you know, movie making priorities, <clears throat> excuse me. And he wanted to continue to make the movies that he wanted to make. I mean, he wanted to make pretty straightforward good and bad guy westerns and and Hollywood and the broader culture was moving away from that pretty quickly. And then you overlay that during the decade of Vietnam that this guy's a medal of honor winner and and he starts to he starts to feel the, the shunning that the rest of the culture starts to give to the army as the Vietnam War goes bad. It's, it's it's too bad.
2: Now, how did he get along with his co-stars and other Hollywood actors?
3: Some of them he got along with really well. Uh, he, he didn't like—I say that, but I should say also that he doesn't like actors who take themselves too seriously. When he's on set— he tends to hang around with uh, with the stagehands or with the animal wranglers or the stuntmen. He likes those guys and he gets on well with them. But actors, most actors, he he, he doesn't really have anything to do with. He sort of avoids them. There are a couple of a couple of uh, oh, how would you say sort of B actors like himself. Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. And I, it's not going to come to me. James Best. Yeah, he knew James Best. Yes. Yeah, and I thought about he and I thought about he and Jim Best when Jim Best died not too long ago. Um, and, and those guy he got on well with him. They played poker together. Uh, if he could find somebody who would just sit and play poker with him, then he found then he found a friend. You know, even if the guy was an actor, but not too many of them.
2: Looking at your book, I mean, I, I didn't realize when you say play poker, he didn't play poker for like five, ten bucks a <laughs> shot. He
3: was he was serious. I mean and, and 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 it's not just a hobby for him, it's part of his trauma. He spends he comes back out of the war experiencing what he has experienced. He spends the rest of his life trying to find something that will give him the thrill, the rush that being in combat does. And and he doesn't find anything. The one thing he turns to is high-stakes gambling. And it, it's, if you would watch him, you'd see him throw down, you know, $500 or $1,000 or $2,000 on a hand of cards, and I think right there he's feeling that rush. And it turns out he's he's not a very lucky card player, and that's the beginning of him losing all his money. And then he gets involved with horse racing, which just allows him to lose money faster.
2: All right. So here he is, his career. And I mean, you start watching the films in the 60s. They're not that good. I, I don't think anybody yeah. would argue differently. At least most of the films that he did in the 60s were not that good. Right. They don't come across that well. Sometimes I guess he did a couple of those in Europe.
3: So here, he did, Yeah, he did a couple in Europe on the cheap too. And he was addicted to sleeping pills at one point. It was just a sad state.
2: And I, I think I remember reading in your book that he had a difficult sleeping without a handgun in his possession
3: yep he kept a gun with him all the time and he slept with it under his pillow and and he would wake from one of his dreams and he would have drawn the gun without even knowing it and you know he had a he had a hair trigger temper and it would could be scary for some people he pulled guns on some people sometimes and uh, it was just it was a sign of his trauma and occasionally he would have a temper yeah he got in fights he was he was insulted easily Uh, But, you know, actually, that's something that goes way back into his childhood. He was always a very proud kid. I remember his second grade teacher commented that he was proud and he wouldn't take an insult without putting up a fight. And uh, he was was scrappy and he was proud and it got him into trouble a lot.
2: Did he have any regrets he couldn't stay in the military? Do you know?
3: (sighs) Well, I do know that when the Korean War broke out, he came back to Texas and he it sort of re-enlisted as a volunteer with the Texas National Guard, and he rose to the rank of major, and the Guard used him to inspire young soldiers and to help you know, motivate young soldiers. And he, when I see him there, I feel like he's got a purpose and a, a fit that he doesn't have in Hollywood. And it, it's too bad that he couldn't have sort of parlayed his success into a longer military career but he couldn't
2: those other actors who served in world war ii how did he get along with them
3: uh he got along with jimmy stewart pretty well uh they they enjoyed each other's company on uh night the night passage set uh i don't think he ever met um any of the other big name actors who you know who served clark gable comes to mind but uh you know, when he could find someone, whether it was an actor or whether it was a stuntman or something, if he could find somebody who had been in combat in Europe and who had who knew what combat was about, and he didn't have to talk about it with him, he could relax and, and feel pretty good. So he got along with the veterans. Oh, and he loved to go to veterans' hospitals. He he loved to make visits to veterans' hospitals, and and it was something that he he was very deeply moved. From the moment he came back, he went. He'd see the guys in the hospitals who had been disabled.
2: Again, his film career is waning a little. But did he ever try television?
3: He did a little bit of television. Uh, he did a couple of these like GE Playhouse things, where there'd be a live theatrical performance on, like a live play on television. He did a couple of those.
2: Did he do that with Ronald uh, Reagan?
3: Uh, no, he didn't do it with Ronald Reagan. He did. He was. It was a different series on another network, as they say. Um, and he did a couple of. Oh, he did a series called Whispering Smith about a detective in Denver and it was it was sort of done on the cheap and he didn't have much faith in it. He didn't take it very seriously. Um, uh, I don't think he would have been a good see, uh, a good series TV star because I don't think he had the focus to keep something like that going.
2: All right, what happens to him at the end?
3: He's he's declared bankruptcy and he's he's out of money. And he's looking for any sort of investment opportunity that could get him back on his feet. And he's contacted in 1970 by a prefab building manufacturer in Atlanta that wants to use him as their spokesman. And they fly him out to Atlanta to tour the facility. And by the time he gets there, he wants to see if this is an investment that he could get in on that could restore his fortune. And they decide to get a plane, and the company's going to fly him up to their manufacturing hub and factory up in Danville, uh, Virginia. And he's on a little four-seater plane, and the plane flies up to, to Danville and gets lost. And over, it's overcast and stormy, and the plane crashes trying to make a landing at the Roanoke Airport in Virginia, and all on board are killed.
2: And how old was he?
3: This was seventy. He was he was not yet forty six. He would have turned forty six that summer. Gosh, yeah, younger and younger.
2: You know, I remember back then it was almost like it was just a minor footnote. You know that he had passed away.
3: Yeah, only one. You know, it was the the big three network newscasts back then in nineteen seventy one. Only one of the three. I think it was NBC. Only one of the three made mention when he when he died when his when the rescuers finally got up there to the mountain and found the plane and found out that he had been killed. Only one of the network news uh, mentioned it that day. You know,
2: I think part of it, he he was forgotten because his film career kind of fizzled out and he wasn't an actor that people remembered anymore in, let's say, 1970,
3: 71. I think that's true. They didn't remember him as an actor and and the new generation didn't remember him as a military hero. It's astonishing how fast he fell off of our cultural radar in the in this course of about ten years, but I guess I guess that's a long time in American culture, but uh, he was people didn't even know his name when he when he died. I mean I credit the the Nixon administration sent representatives to his funeral and they had a really nice funeral at Arlington National Cemetery, of course. and uh, George Bush was uh, the Nixon administration's representative to the funeral and uh, and people who knew him, took note of how what kind of person he was, but most people by that point had forgotten him.
2: Let me take another short break, and, and we'll just wrap it up in a couple of minutes if you still have time, Professor Smith. Sure, that'd be great. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. We're talking about The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy by David Smith. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes.
7: Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information, but so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
8: I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a a burden to me.
4: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time. gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which which probably means I, I never really got it
5: to begin with.
8: You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
5: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home.
4: Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new
8: person. I love it.
9: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
8: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you.
3: If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit
1: catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
6: Sir, Sergeant Murphy reports that the battalion commander is ordered. Howdy, Murphy. How would you like to go to West Point? West Point? He means it. Quite a few men who've shown special qualifications are being picked out of line outfits. I
4: talked it over at regimental, and we think you ought to be one of them. You'll never find a better break than this.
6: Sir, it's true i decided to stay in the Army, but... West Point. I'm not qualified for it, sir. I didn't even finish grade school. The army courses you took and the coaching we can give you will get you through. After we move through the Colmar area, we'll get things rolling. In the meantime, we'll take a commission. But, well, sir, how about... You won't have to transfer. With the replacement shortage being what it is, the rules has been waived. You are now a gentleman by act of Congress. Take a bath, shave... Well, anyway, take a bath and get back into the lines.
2: Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is David Smith, author of The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero. And we're talking about Audie Murphy, that when he, at his death, he was almost forgotten, which is hard to believe. Most decorated soldier of World War II, movie star and really a very popular movie star of the 50s, and he dies in 1971, and he's almost forgotten. In retrospect of his life, how did he feel about The Hell and Back? That was his autobiographical movie, so to speak. Right.
3: You know, he he didn't want to write the book, and the book came out in 1948 and was a bestseller, and he, he didn't like it in part because it put the focus on him. And Every person that you talk to from from World War II, anybody who's the hero, they don't want the focus on them. They want it on on the other people. Audie Murphy was convinced that his living through the war was a matter of luck and not skill. He called himself a fugitive from the law of averages. And uh, every once in a while when he was in a bitter mood, he would actually sign autographs like that. But, But he didn't want the attention on himself. And, and he wanted to talk about his friends who didn't make it, who gave far more than he had. And when he heard that the studio was thinking about turning it into a movie, his book, into a movie, first of all, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want it made into a movie, and he didn't have a say in it because the studio had bought the rights. And basically they said, we're gonna, we've hired a director, we've done a screenplay, we're going to make this movie whether you want us to or not and then he decided he didn't want to be in it and he put up a fuss about that and he said find somebody else i don't want to be in it and and, fi- and finally a friend of his said look nobody can portray you better than you can and i guess that was a hard argument to to counter and he agreed to do it he agreed to play himself and he well i got to say once he agreed to make the movie and once shooting started he threw himself into it to get the details right and to make the, make the images the way he wanted them. He was more involved in that than any other of his movies.
2: And again, for those of you in the audience out there, if you've never seen To Hell and Back, it's really a piece of American history starring Audie Murphy as himself. I don't think there's any other film like that of the period.
3: I can't think of anything even remotely like that. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a casting, it was a mark of genius, a stroke of genius.
2: Now, I know you have a lot of respect for the film No Name on the Bullet. Can we? Yes, I do. Can you just explain to the audience that film?
3: Yeah, No Name on the Bullet. I, re- I regard it as his best, as the best western that he made. And in it, he plays a hired killer. He plays a, a hitman, a, a famous hired killer in the West, who shows up in this town, and and nobody in the town knows whom he's there to kill. You know, he, they don't know why he's there. They don't know who he's after. And he just, he has a calm demeanor and a cold stare. And, and I always think that he's not acting in this movie. Not at all. I mean, that's who he is. And he just watches the town sort of go to pieces around him. And it's, everybody has a secret that they think they somebody would want to kill him for. And he's, he's got a quick draw and a detached kind of emotionless air about him that's just, that that he does really chillingly well. It's it's one of his best movies.
2: Yeah, with Charles Drake and uh, who co-starred with him at, uh, in a lot of films. How did they get along?
3: He and Drake got along really well, you know. And Charles Drake played his best friend in To Helen Back, the guy named uh, Laddie Tipton who died in his arms in the south of France, who was his best friend during the war. And uh, he and Charles Drake got along really well. And I think Charles Drake understood. Audie Murphy well enough so that he wouldn't push him or he wouldn't, you know, push his buttons or anything. Uh, Drake wasn't one of his gambling buddies, but they, they seemed to have a lot of respect for each other, and they enjoyed working together.
2: Finally now, why did you decide to do this book?
3: I'm fascinated by the concept of heroism in American culture and and the way that a hero sort of operates in the way we think about things. And I'm also sort of fascinated by about, by the way that American culture regards its celebrities. And I, I don't know of anybody else who embodies these two sort of archetypes of American idealism as well as Audie Murphy does. And to watch him try to inhabit both of those roles at the same time was was something that, draw, that drew me to him long before the publisher asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book about him.
2: You know, one thing I meant to comment when you're talking about no name on the bullet, I remember sometimes I'd be watching an Audie Murphy Western or something on TV and some younger person would go in and I would point to him and say, you know, that's a true hero. That's a man who's credited with killing over 240 Germans in World War II. And the reaction would ordinarily come back. Well, wait a minute. He's got a baby face. He looks so innocent.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, everybody would hear about Audie Murphy. You know, the people who would be starring with him in an upcoming movie, and they'd be eager to, eager to meet him, and you know, this great American hero. And then they'd meet him, and their reaction would be this: you know, this little guy—he was really short and diminutive and baby-faced, like you said—and uh, and people were always shocked by how unheroic he seemed to be. But but he was—he 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 was far tougher than anybody gave him credit for. That's for sure
2: yeah one of the great american heroes of the 20th century audie murphy david smith thank you for writing the price of valor doing your part to keep american history alive
3: yeah i mean i, I do that every day i'm i did it today i'll do it tomorrow I, I tell my classes about audie murphy and i it's a conversation that i that i want to keep going i don't want people to forget this because it's too important and if if your listeners want to contact me they can certainly do it and i'll i'll talk their ear off about audie murphy
2: Okay, how, how would they do that?
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, David a. Smith 12 and I've got a website, DavidASmith.net, and you can contact me either of those ways, and, and we'll talk about Audie Murphy all day.
2: Okay, very good. So thank you for being in our show. Thank you for hey, thank being on Connor's Corner.
9: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wing Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org.
5: Whenever I sit down with a homeowner, the number one question asked is always, which reverse mortgage option is best for me and my family? I personally will help you decide which reverse mortgage program is best for you. My job is to help active retirees find the best solution for their retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward, objective information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
2: We had the General Consulate of Norway talking about the Norwegian Day Parade in Bay Ridge. This week, we've got another parade coming up in Bay Ridge. And we've got, what, one of the last Norwegians left in Bay Ridge or Ray Albion?
8: <laughs> one of the last Norwegians, that's right. Uh, you know, we've been here for a long time, and we marched to the Norwegian Day Parade last, uh, yesterday uh, carrying a banner promoting uh, our parade, which will take place uh, next Monday, Memorial Day, uh, May 29th, kicking off, stepping off at 11 a.m. on 77th Street and 3rd Avenue.
2: Now, what's the history of the Memorial Day parade in Brooklyn?
8: Well, 1867, shortly after the end of the Civil War, uh, a lot of towns and uh, cities in the country uh, wanted to do uh, some type of a memorial to remember all the Civil War dead uh brooklyn did it back in 1867 150 years ago uh to to remember all those who died and that has kind of over the years uh become memorial day originally it was decoration day so memorial day now honors all of our dead all those who young men and women who uh pay the ultimate price for our freedom
2: okay so now the parade again i just want this memorial day all veterans i assume are welcome to to show up and march somewhere We
8: encourage all veterans, it doesn't matter. You do not have to be a a member of a veteran service organization to march in this parade. Uh, Veterans uh, are proud to march to remember their their fallen brothers and sisters. Uh, If you don't belong to a veteran service organization, just come on down and we'll place you in the appropriate uh, era. Uh, For the parade, we're going to have seven floats. Uh, The Catholic War veterans, uh, you're going to have a float, Mike. And then we have a a float for each of our our eras. Uh, We have a World War II float, Korean War veterans float, uh, Vietnam veterans float. The American Legion is taking on their own float, and the American Legion Auxiliary is taking their own float. And then we have a very special float, uh, Hope for the Warriors. Uh, Hope for the Warriors is an organization akin to the Wounded Warrior Project, uh, they've been around for 11 years, and they've actually been in our parade before. So they're going to have some wounded warriors on their float. So if uh, to, to just add to encouraging veterans to come out and march, if you can't march, we can put you on a float. We can put you on a float that is uh, consistent with the, the era that you, you uh, served. And if you don't want to get on a float, we have vehicles for you. So that all veterans, there's no reason why a veteran – can't march in this parade.
2: May 29th, Monday, parade kicks off promptly at 11 a.m. at 3rd Avenue and 78th Street, goes along 3rd Avenue to Marine Avenue up to 4th and over to John Paul Jones Park, which when we were kids, we called Cannonball Park.
8: And the memorial service in John Paul Jones Park is a very emotional uh, event. Uh, As soon as everybody gets into the park, we'll start the the ceremony. Uh, And that consists of veteran service organizations laying wreaths. Uh, to memorialize uh, all those who, who died in, in service to our nation. And then uh, we'll raise our, our nation's flag from half-staff to full-staff. Right away, right after that, or while that's happening, uh, the Veteran Corps of Artillery, which is the oldest New York State military unit, they date back to the American Revolution. They're going to fire off a 21-gun salute uh, using the cannon from uh, you know, the only active-duty military installation in the metropolitan area Fort Hamilton. And after that is done, and if the weather is right uh, and, and the smoke is, is kind of like uh, floating across John Paul Jones Park, two young people from uh, uh, the Fort Hamilton High School Marching Regiment will play uh, Echo Taps. And it's very emotional for me to, to stand there and listen to that. So it's a wonderful parade. There are about 18 bands that are going to be participating. Our Grand Marshal, uh, Lieutenant General John A. Toolan, Jr., uh, United States Marine Corps, retired. Uh, he, he's a wonderful man. He's from the neighborhood. He attended St. Ephraim's. He went to Xavier High School, and he graduated from Fordham. He's, he's a Brooklyn-bred bo- Brooklyn boy. And then our other Grand Marshal is Prisco DeAngelis. Uh, Pete DeAngelis has been active in the parade uh, as an administrator probably for about 35 years, but prior to that, for another 35 years, he marched in the parade. So for 70 years, about well, 65,
2: 70 years, this man has been involved with the parade. Okay, Memorial Day Parade, May 29th. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Mike. God bless. I hope you enjoyed a Memorial Day show. Again, let's remember the true meaning of Memorial Day to honor the fallen heroes of the United States military. Now, next week, we're going to have on our old friend Joe Pierce, who's got a play coming out, Death Comes for the War Poets. We're also going to have on Chris Price, who's going to be talking about Petersburg and the Appomattox campaign. So, again, it's going to be a busy weekend next week. But, again, if you want to learn more about estate planning and elder law, you can give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500 to schedule an appointment about estate planning or elder law. We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. We do not charge for the initial consultation. The first consultation is free and everything we do as far as estate planning and elder law is done on a flat fee basis. We don't charge by the hour. So if you want, give us a call at 718 238 6500 Have a blessed Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Lawyer.
1: The preceding program sponsored by Connors & Sullivan PLLC. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's Top Rated Lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. 718 238 That's 718 238 And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6.